endurance through that evening, his endurance through that morning where sinners were hostile against him, where it cost him his very life, where he suffered shame, where he suffered for our sins. Now, what is that to do? If we stop and consider him, notice the rest of verse 3. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Verse 1, he says, endure. Verse 2, like Jesus endured. Verse 3, if we'll consider Jesus, we'll do a better job of not becoming discouraged. We'll do a better job of not becoming weary in our soul. Friends, too often times we look for shortcuts. We look for quick drive-throughs. We look for gimmicks. And this morning, let's accept the fact that when it comes to enduring in the Christian life, there is no gimmick. It's looking to Jesus, our example. And it's appreciating and admiring and taking to heart His pattern of endurance and saying, that's what I want to become more like. With that in mind, let's think about some things as it deals with this last evening. When we go to Luke, the 22nd chapter, we see the upper room. The approach of the upper room begins in Luke, the 22nd chapter, in verse 7, where they were preparing for the day of the unleavened bread, or better known as the Passover. There had to be preparations made the day before, so Jesus sends Peter and John and tells them how they're going to identify the proper house, and then even tells them how they're going to identify the room that will already be arranged and prepared for them. And so they go in and they celebrate the Passover feast. This time for Jesus is a time of instruction. You see, the very fact that they would celebrate the Passover, it was a time that when God ordained this Passover, He said that He was doing it so even children would ask, why are you doing this? It was to look back and appreciate that God allowed death to pass over by the shedding of the Lamb's blood. And now Jesus, in the beginning of John, the first chapter is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the great Lamb of God is celebrating the final Passover. And it's here He also gives instructions about the Lord's Supper. We've just observed the Lord's Supper. It was Jesus in that Passover room that first taught about that Lord's Supper. It was also in this place that Jesus mentions the kingdom. Now Him mentioning the kingdom probably stirred a little bit of pride within those 12 apostles. And so they began to argue as they had done previously, which one of us is the greatest. They probably were still thinking that it was an earthly kingdom. And so they wanted to know if Jesus was going to be the king of this kingdom, they wanted to know probably who's going to be the second and third and fourth in command. And you can imagine them arguing. And Jesus says it straight like this. He says, which is the greatest? And he says, it's the youngest. That was different from their standards and their culture. Then he addresses the question again, and he says, is it the one that sits at the table or the one that serves the table? Well, most of us would say the one that's the greatest is that sits at the table. And he says, oh no, the one that is the greatest is one who serves at the table. And Jesus takes off his garments and puts on the towel, girding himself like a servant, and he goes around and he washes their feet. And you can imagine, Peter even has great difficulty with this, their great rabbi, their great master teacher, the one who has just presided at the Passover feast, and now he's washing their feet. And it's in this setting that Jesus also instructs them about who would betray him. 
He took the bread and he dipped it and he handed it to Judas. And he even told him the timetable. He said, now what you do, go and do quickly. And then he taught about love. He just washed their feet and he was on his way all the way to the cross. And so he says, a new commandment that I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And even says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. John, the 13th chapter, verse 34 and 35. Now, when we look at all these various teachings, there's another one that comes at the end of John, the 13th chapter, that is heartbreaking. He's preparing them for the fact that he will not be with them forever on this earth. He's instructing them of his departure. And like a child, Peter says, Lord, I want to go with you. Parents, those of you that have those little ones, and when you go out the door, every time you walk out, they say, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. Those days are end. You better enjoy them. Peter, he was childlike in a wonderful way in his faith. Lord, wherever you're going, I want to go with you. You can't go right now. Not where I'm going now. Lord, I, I'd lay down my life for you. No. Peter, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. You see, all we're studying tonight takes place in one night in the early morning hours. What an instruction. You can imagine how that put a downer on their attitudes. And it's in that response that Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Listen as he describes heaven. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive it in myself that where I am there you may be also. He gives them beautiful instruction of heaven and even how to get to heaven. As Thomas says, he doesn't know. And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Tremendous instruction. He also gives instruction of the fact that he's not going to leave them alone. Even though he is leaving, when he ascends, the Father will send back the Holy Spirit and they won't be alone. Now, the Scriptures tells us that at the end of this, they sung a hymn and they went out to Mount Olives. Now, through this eastern gate here, the southeastern gate of Jerusalem, we believe that that's where they probably exited. And Mount Olive would have been on the northern part of the Jerusalem. And the Kidron Valley and Gethsemane and Mount Olives were all outside of the city wall. And so as we think about them saying they went on their way, it doesn't mean that we know nothing from the time of the the upper room all the way over to Mount Olive. No, there's so much that we know from that. When we look in the Scriptures, we see in John the 15th chapter, we see some teaching that took place there, and it was introspective. In other words, it seems that everything Jesus addresses at this point, it's things that must have been on his heart as he was looking inside, things that he had concern for them. And so he goes outside of the city wall and scholars would tell us that this would have been a full moon. So it would have been very easy for them to walk along in the nighttime and probably Jesus looks over at some at a vineyard and he's thinking about perhaps He's thinking about the fact that he's just said Peter's going to deny him. Another gospel tells us that all are going to forsake him. And then he teaches in the parable of the vineyard, the vine and the branches. And branches can only bear fruit if they remain in him. He's teaching them the importance. So surely they'll want to come back because that's where the real life is found. 
He also teaches them about love, but he talks about the love that he's describing as a love that he obeys the Father's commandments and he wants them to obey his commandments. Think about that as he's going to Gethsemane and that's what his prayer is there. Not my will, but your will be done. He also addresses again his concern for them. He even says, I have many more things as he's in this valley here. He says, I have many more things that I want to tell you. But you see, they're not ready to hear it. And He's not going to be with them on earth. So that's why He says again about the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and He's going to teach you all things. In other words, the things that they're not ready for Jesus to teach them at this point. The Holy Spirit's going to be sent to them. And He's telling them that as He's traveling this nighttime teaching episode going through Kindred Valley. And then also, in John the 17th chapter, we have the longest prayer recorded uh, of Jesus' prayers. Now, we're sure that he prayed longer prayers. This is just the longest one that we have recorded. And it's in this prayer, if you can imagine, somewhere along the way in this valley, outside of the gate, it's just he and his 11 apostles at this time. Can you imagine him perhaps saying to them, let's stop and let's pray? And for five verses, he prays for himself. That's the first that he prays for. I've actually heard Christians say, I don't ever pray for myself. I think, I think that would be haughty or arrogant to pray for yourself. Friends, we haven't been reading the Bible. The only perfect individual that walked this earth began his prayer in John 17 by praying for himself. We see righteous individuals from throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, praying for themselves. Friends, from a humble heart, we know we need God. And that's what prayer is for, is to ask God for His help. The next several verses, down to verse 19, He prays for the apostles. For the ones that He has been given the message of God to. He prays that they'll be sanctified by the truth, which is the Word of God. And then, if you don't know this, if you've never heard this, you're going to love this. The next following verses, he prays for all of those who will believe on him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ stopped in this valley and he said a prayer for you. He prayed that we would continue to be such believers. What a powerful evening. It was an evening that was flooding out of the heart of Jesus as no doubt the intensity was building. Because you remember, we studied last Sunday morning this Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember, this was one of the most agonizing points that we ever see recorded in the life of Jesus. This was a time that was a garden of decision. It was a place where an olive grove was, and there was an olive press there also. It was a time that symbolically, Jesus was pressed. Jesus had to make the decision. I'm not suggesting to you that Jesus sinned. He did not sin. But Jesus had to decide to obey that's what the Hebrew writer points out as he talks about Jesus' vehement cries. And it's in this garden that he learned obedience. It's in this garden, in intensity of prayer, he offered the first prayer to say, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The Father and the Son did not have another plan to redeem mankind. He says, not my will, but thy will be done. And so by the time he offers the second prayer, he does not even say, if it is possible. He says, if it is not possible, I shall drink this cup. Not my will, but thy will be done. He goes back the third time and he prays the same thing. Notice the emphasis 
is that he is praying for God's will to be done in a very difficult time in his life. What a very, very beautiful example for us. But also, as he's praying, his hour is near that the one who he has sent to betray him is on his way. Now you remember his three closest, Peter, James, and John, he had to wake them up because he could see probably and hear in the distance. He could hear probably coming through the area of town, he could hear anywhere from 600 to 2,000 footmen, soldiers. They had clubs. They had swords. Probably armor and torches. You could hear them marching. Jesus awakes them. He comes out to meet them, not to run from them, because remember, He's giving His life on Calvary. He stands there for Judas to come up and call Him Rabbi, which means teacher or master. And He kisses Him on the cheek. Friends, have you ever had a friend betray you? I wonder if Jesus at that point was flushed with blood in his cheeks as as anger swelled within him that this was Judas. This was one of the ones that I've chosen. This was supposed to be a follower of mine, not one that would lead me to condemnation. But of course it was all also to fulfill God's plan. And it's there that they ask. Jesus asked, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And I can't explain this one to you. I don't know exactly why. I just know that's what the scripture says. When he identified himself saying, I am he. All of these armed footmen soldiers fell back to the ground. But Jesus' word has always been powerful. And as they gather themselves back, Peter has drawn his sword and he wants to fight. You remember earlier in Jesus' ministry? You remember when he talked to the fact that he would be offered, that his life would be taken? And you remember that Peter rebuked him and declared that he wouldn't allow that to happen? And remember Jesus at that point said, get behind me, Satan. Here that same part of Peter is still coming out. That part of Peter that says, I'm going to stand between you. I'm not going to let them get you, Jesus. And he takes a swing at the servant of the high priest's ear. His name's Malchus. Jesus tells Peter to put his sword up and he touches his ear and he heals him. There they bind Jesus and they walk him back from the northeastern side all the way back to the southwestern side of Jerusalem. He's going in the middle of the night and now he's going to face Annas. Annas used to be a high priest. It's interesting that they took him to Annas first. You see, he was wicked and his sons were wicked. So they ended up losing their office. But what seems to have happened is that even though they lost their office, they hadn't lost their power. They still were very influential. As a matter of fact, the high priest that was in office at the present, Caiaphas, he was Annas' son-in-law. So the family still ruled in this particular office. When they brought Jesus here, when we read in John the 18th chapter, we read in verse 13, they led him away to Annas first, 
for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, that would have been John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. This was a time of indignation. This was a time where their great displeasure for Jesus, believing that Jesus was an offense to them, was taking over their life. This was a time where they were not interested in having a trial to find out if he was guilty. And if he was guilty of something, what would be the proper punishment? This was a time where they knew this. They wanted Jesus dead. They started at the sentencing. Now we've got to find a crime that will make it worth him being sentenced. But they weren't able to find a crime, so they had to figure out a way to make it appear that he had committed a crime that would be worthy of death. You see, it was all a scheme. Jesus was followed by John and Peter. Now, as we read this part of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's mostly the story of Jesus, but there is interlaced in that story the details of Peter. You remember, he had been told just a few hours earlier this night that he would deny Jesus in the upper room. And now, John, he knew the high priest. He was invited into the inner area. Peter did not know the high priest. He wasn't invited in. The girl that was the servant of the door saw him and said, are you one of his disciples? And he denied Jesus for the first time. Later that night, he went out to warm by a fire and another asked him if he was Jesus and he denied. Now it's during this that also Jesus is delivered from Annas to Caiaphas. Just before they deliver him though, they ask Jesus about his teachings. And he says, I've been teaching publicly in the synagogues. In other words, he was implying you can ask anyone. I've got witnesses all over that know what I've taught. They didn't want to hear the truth. So with a a hand, an officer slapped Jesus. They bound him. And in John the 18th chapter and 24 tells us that they took him to the high priest. As they took Jesus over to some area wherever Cephas would have been at that time, He also apparently had gathered others of the Sanhedrin council for a middle-of-the-night meeting, which was against the law. Many of the things that they did to crucify Jesus was illegal by their very own structure, uh, judicial structure. It's during this time that Peter's still warming around that fire. It's during this time that one of the men that had been back in Mount Olive, in the olive grove, says, I saw you. You are one of his. Now this man that said this was a relative of Malchus whose ear had been cut off. Peter probably felt much fear at this point. He not only denied at this point, but this third time, he cursed and sweared that he was not a disciple of Jesus. It still works today. Cursing and swearing still proves to people that we're not a disciple of Jesus. 
But some way, the geography was just right so that when he did that the third time, Jesus saw him. Their eyes locked. Think back a time in your life where you did something that if you were to say, if I could ever go back and relive my life, that particular wrong I would definitely not commit again. I don't know why I did it. I don't know what I was thinking. I was so sorry for it. I want you to think that what if at the moment you committed that wrong, you looked up and Jesus was staring you in the eye. Peter begins to weep bitterly and he runs out. It's in this setting also that we learn about the iniquity that's taking place, which is the injustice that's taking place. You see, the the works of the Sanhedrin council has nothing to do with pure motives. Their motive is to kill Jesus. And when we read in Mark the 14th chapter, we see that in verse 55. In verse 56, we even see that they have false witnesses, but their false witnesses can't even agree. And they had to have two false witnesses agreeing to be able to say he's guilty of death. And so even their scheme to have false witnesses isn't working out. And so finally, they just ask him, If he is the son of the blessed, verse 61 in Mark 14, and he answers, I am. And 63, the high priest begins to tear his clothes and he says, it's blasphemy, it's worthy of death. And here we read verse 64 and 65 about the blasphemy in 64, worthy of being condemned of death. And listen to 65. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. The persecution is growing more brutal. Imagine Jesus now with men's saliva flowing from their face. Imagine blindfolds as they're mocking him, as one hits him and then says, who was it? And another hits him and says, who was it? And then, in a strange irony to make things legal, they had to wait till morning to have the official court. And they waited for daybreak and they made their way to the Sanhedrin Council's official meeting house. And it was there that they condemned him, a crime worthy of death, and marched him after that to Pilate. Now we'll conclude here this morning, but let me tell you one more thing that happened at this point. Scriptures tells us Judas was so heartbroken after watching Jesus being condemned It makes you wonder what he was thinking he was going to see. He was the one that betrayed him. He runs around into the temple where the the elders and the chief priests were meeting. He has all 30 pieces of silver and he throws it back at them and says, you can have it. And they say, we don't want it. It's blood money. And he throws it on the floor. Judas refuses to keep it. They refuse to claim it and put it back in the treasury. And so they buy a field, potter's field, to bury strangers, fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah. But now note this, he too was so sad, like Peter. 
But he went out and he hung himself. In just a little more than 50 days, we see Peter has come back. In John 21, Jesus asked him three times, Do you love me? And in Acts, the second chapter, it is Peter who is standing before the first day the church is established and assembled, and he is preaching about this very story about Jesus of Nazareth who you have crucified and slain. But God has raised up from the dead. What is it that helps us to endure? Hebrews 12 teaches us that if we'll consider Jesus and His endurance, it helps us not grow weary. Judas saw the story, but his reaction to it wasn't righteous. Peter saw the story, and his reaction was righteous. He came home. Friends, Jesus wants us to live a righteous life, but Jesus also knows we're not perfect. That's why He created a scheme of redemption. That's why it's called grace. I need to realize this morning that endurance doesn't mean I don't ever sin. Endurance means that when I do sin, I repent of it and I come home. This morning, we've studied a moving story. It's moved all over Jerusalem. We've studied a story that has moved throughout the centuries. It's still being told almost 2,000 years later. We're studying a story that moves people from damnation to eternal life. But the question is, are you more like Peter? Are you more like Judas? Has it moved you in the right direction? If you've never been baptized into Christ for remission of sins, won't you make that move this morning? As a believer, willing to repent of sins and confess before men, won't you be baptized and allow Jesus to wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Maybe you have been immersed into Christ. And maybe you evaluate your endurance right now and you realize that you haven't come back. You've committed wrong and you've remained out in the world. And it's time to repent. It's time to confess that wrong. And it's time to seek God's forgiveness. Friends, there's not a person here perfect. But by the grace of God, Because of the study, the story we study today, we can be saved. If we can help in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.